Welcome to the Pilot Podcast, where we watch the pilot episodes of TV shows and answer your question, should I watch this? My name is BJ. And my name is Me Too. And this week, we're checking out Motherland Fort Salem on Freeform, The Plot Against America on HBO, Breeders on FX, and Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu. So stay tuned to the end to find out if Beej is a rebellious teen, a future parent, or a witch. Or a combination. Yeah, you could do anything. Except those things. Well, no, you could be a parent. Or a witch. Can't be a teen. Anyway, let's focus on witchcraft and talk about Motherland Fort Salem on Freeform. So this is a new drama series, and it's following three young women, Rael, Tally, and Abigail, and they are sent to basic training to learn combat magic before they are deployed in the fight against evil, which will also send them to war college. Anyway, this is all set in a women-dominated world in the U.S., which ended persecution of witches over 300 years ago with an agreement called the Salem Accord. So now witches are basically our supernatural frontline soldiers. What did you think of this whole concept of good witch soldiers versus evil terrorist witches? Well, first I want to say that the witches we're following, Rael played by Taylor Hickson, Abigail, played by Ashley Nicole Williams, and Tally, played by Jessica Sutton, were all fabulous as good witches, if we're talking about good witches. But on both sides, the witches are killing hundreds, if not thousands of people, and their honor comes from dying in order to kill all of those people and protect the integrity of whatever side that they've chosen. So it is certainly not so black and white. It's hard to protect and prevent excessive destruction when you can create storms and tornadoes. With your singing. Or pop a balloon and cause people to jump off of balconies. That was actually jarring to see. So in the opening scene, one of the members of the spree, which is the terrorist group of witches, walks into this crowd with a balloon and causes 1,600 people to jump from balconies. And that was their terrorist attack. It was a very jarring way to start a show, especially given the state of mental health right now. I was like, oof. What a choice to make to open your show. Yeah. And I don't think I started liking the show until later in the episode when they started doing more campy things, because in my mind, I thought this was Hogwarts meets Cadet Kelly. (laughs) The parts where they are holding hands and singing and making something appear from the tuning fork, that made me laugh. I wanted them to lean into the camp. I saw them trying to focus on the dark elements, like a more adult version of a CW show. It reminded me a lot of Charmed, the new and the old version, since they had the whole three witches per unit set up and they were holding hands to use their magic together, which was a little odd because we see that the spree, the evil terrorist group, don't need groups to... I guess, be at their most powerful. So I'm wondering if that's going to be a motif where good witches work together and the evil witches kind of fly solo. That could be what comes next. How did you feel about the family backgrounds of each of the witches? They each had their own pressures in different ways. I thought the family backgrounds made all of the characters more interesting, and it gave you a reason to care about each of them. For me, I think Tally had the most interesting background. It was pretty simple where her aunts were recruited for this under the Salem Accord, and they had to go to training camp. But her mother, I guess, pulled some strings, so Tally had the option to turn it down. But Tally wants to do the honorable thing and fight for good. 
And while I don't completely agree with her choice, I think she has ended up being the most interesting character because I see myself as the neutral in-between type of person a lot as well. Whose background resonated with you or was the most interesting? I don't think anyone's background resonated with me, but I thought Tally's background was fascinating given she comes from a vegan family, a matriarchal society, a society that has rejected war. So the conflict there is fascinating of her joining this group. I would say that Abigail's background was interesting too because she has all of this pressure. So people think of her as the stuck up person and this rude person. But in reality, she comes from this line of extremely successful women and is a descendant of an enslaved person who, for whatever reason, fought to join this witch army to protect the country that enslaved her. She has this legacy to live up to. And then Rael on the other side lost her mom to this. So she's very conflicted about how she feels about the structure, but still has this it feels like obligation to do right by her mother. From the way she portrays things, she has very limited choice. So she's either going to die as a low-ranking soldier pretty quickly, or if she wanted to, she could try and achieve a higher status like her mother. One person that we saw on the show that helped complicate things even further was Rael's love interest, Skyla, played by Amalia Holm. We learned that there are some more things going on with Skyla than we originally thought. I'm curious about what her influence on Rael will be or if Rael influences Skyla back. And another character we're introduced to whom I'm excited to see grow is their drill sergeant Anacostia played by, of course, the Atlanta talent, Demetria McKinney. Skyla will be an interesting twist. We see a lot of cool stuff with her, although they make it very clear she's a suspicious character from the beginning in true teen drama fashion. Yes. And I'd like to see where Anacostia goes. I don't see much growth for her. She seems to be more of a mentor, but it would be nice if she had her own subplot. That's where I saw the Cadet Kelly angle because she was so hard on the girls, just like how Christy Carlson Romano was hard on Hilary Duff. Mm -hmm. But then if you remember, it's because Christy cared. And so she did the drills with Hilary. And in the end, Hilary made her proud and Christy did right by her by raising her up well in this program. So the season finale, according to your analogy, will be a magical dance number. If we're lucky, there's already singing. I was like, "Mm, look at BJ sneaking in another singing show. I don't know if I want to listen to this kind of music. (laughs) Well, Beej, I do want to listen to your rating for this show. What would you rate Freeform's Motherland Fort Salem? I would rate this show would watch again casually. Once we really dived into the basic training setting, I started to get more interested. I want to learn more about how magic works in this world. We see that your voice, singing, chanting, humming are all key. We also hear about someone who can do necromagic, and we haven't seen much of that yet. So I'll watch a few more episodes and see where the story takes these three. What about you? I'm not quite where you are, Beej. I am interested in the story, but I wasn't so impressed by this first episode. So I would give it a couple more episodes to see if it becomes more interesting. And then if not, I'd almost be tempted to just read a series overview or talk to you about how this ends up, but not so much watch each episode to see how the story unfolds. That's fair. That's a very you answer for a series like this. Thank you, BJ. I appreciate you knowing me well. You're consistent. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of alternative histories of America and war, let's take it on over to the 1940s in The Plot Against America on HBO. Tell us about it, me too. 
Adapted by David Simon and Ed Burns, The Plot Against America is based on Philip Roth's very successful book. It's set in 1940 with the U.S. determining whether or not to join World War II with Charles Lindbergh leading the charge against joining the war. We focus in on the Levin family, led by Herman, played by Morgan Spector, his wife Bess, played by Zoe Kazan, and their kids Sandy, played by Caleb Malice, and Philip, played by Ozzy Robertson. And close to their family as well is their nephew Alvin, played by Anthony Boyle, and their aunt Evelyn, played by the icon Winona Ryder. How did you feel about it, Beach? Well, I do like History Channel and a lot of documentaries and what they can tell me about what's happened in the past. Reimagining the past isn't as interesting to me unless you put a very fantastical spin on it, like Motherland Fort Salem. So this bleak retelling of Jewish people dealing with a fascist America is not what I would seek out in an alternate history. How do you feel about reworking these darker times in history for television? So I'd agree with you. We saw it with Hunters, also in The Man in High Castle on Amazon Prime. This heightened history of the U.S. or reimagining of history in order to tell stories doesn't quite appeal to me. I think because the history itself is so dramatic that I don't think I need a new take on it. One thing I appreciated about the show is how recent it felt. It felt like, for sure, a 1940s set show, but you felt the recency of it. And one thing I think we forget when we talk about these times in history is the recency of these events. People who were there are still alive today. Yes. Speaking of these events and how they are very heightened, we also see how it can affect a family life. So one of the big dynamics that's starting to pick up in this first episode is that the kids, Philip and Sandy, actually are developing interest in Charles Lindbergh, while the father, Herman, is a very outspoken with his opinions against Charles Lindbergh and the rise of fascism. And we also see Bess, who is uncomfortable with how this can affect her family. Do you think that this is going to be a plot that's going to keep going where there's a divide between parents and children? And within the parents too, because Bess talks about how she grew up in a town where she was the only Jewish family. And Herman is not used to that because he grew up around Jewish families. And so he feels a freedom that Bess doesn't with speaking comfortably about his opinion out loud, no matter where he is. And then the difference between the parents and the kids is also fascinating with the kids holding a different opinion of Charles Lindbergh, trying to understand the gravity of the moment in the little snippets of information they're able to glean because, of course, you shield your kids from things. And I always talk about this, but that's why I loved Trevor Noah's book so much, Born a Crime, because he talks about experiencing apartheid South Africa as a young person, just processing what he could, what he was exposed to. And I think most of the text I personally have read about apartheid South Africa is from the perspective of a adults and political dissidents and leaders and people who held a different level of agency than a child who is just dealing with what's been given to them. That's a good point. We'll definitely see the generational differences where the parents have the history of when they grew up, what their parents told them versus these kids. They're learning things in the now and just getting hints from their parents' opinions. And speaking of kids, what do you think will happen next with Alvin? Because he is mad. Yes, he is trying to let out his frustrations against these anti-Semitic Germans who are in his neighborhood and town. You know, he seems like a genuinely good guy. 
but it's that same old story. That's good kid, smart, bright, lots of potential, but he's hanging out with the wrong crew. And so I think he's going down a dangerous path where his family might not be able to help him if things take a turn for the worse. That's a prediction I unfortunately have for the show is Alvin's going to be in a tight spot that his family, no matter how well connected they are, won't be able to get him out of. Which is sad. He seems like a good guy. But he's understandably mad. He's at that age where he wants to fight back. He feels like no one's doing anything, so it's up to him. But unfortunately, I don't know if he himself and his few friends are enough to fight back. No, I don't think so. I don't think a group of (laughs) teens is going to overcome fascism. Hey, you never know. This is an alternate history. That's true. Three in-shape teens who are looking for a fight might be able to do it. Sounds like the plot of a CW show. That's true. So, Me Too, what did you think of the plot against America on HBO? I would watch again casually. I think it's too heavy to binge, which is why I'm not saying seriously. But I am interested enough in the story to want to know how it turns out. I just, given our heavy times right now and the fact that I've been cooped up in my home, I don't know that this is a show that I can feel good about binging, but I do want to see where it goes. What about you, Beach? So I'm going to say I would not watch again. But the plot did interest me enough that maybe I would listen to the novel on audiobook. Ooh, that's a good one, too. So take my time listening to it, but then I can easily do other things while absorbing the story. Smart, Beach. Thanks. I have ideas. You know who else needs ideas? Who? Parents. You got to do whatever you can think of. And that's what we see in Breeders on FX and Sky One. Beach, tell us what happened in this first episode. So we are introduced to Paul, played by Martin Freeman, and his wife, Allie, played by Daisy Haggard. And they are two parents with two kids, Luke and Ava, played by George Wakeman and Jada Isles. And this whole episode is really just centered on one night, one normal night for them, where their two kids took naps and now they cannot sleep and are up all night. And these tired parents are taking 90-minute shifts to keep their children entertained and hopefully convince them to fall asleep again. Which bears the question, why did they have kids? That is a very good question. We do see some flashbacks to before they had children and when each of their children were born. And it seems like children weren't originally a part of their plan. Why do you think they changed that? There is one flashback where Paul plays with a kid and it looks like he is more into it than he wants to let on. And maybe that's where the seed was planted of wanting kids. I think the show will reveal later, maybe through more flashbacks, when the turn happened and they ended up wanting kids. Because they also have a friend who is the godfather to their daughter who really wants kids and has been struggling with infertility for a long time. So it's also interesting to see those side by side where they didn't really want kids and then all of a sudden they have two of them and they have this friend for a long time who desperately wanted kids and hasn't been successful in that. Yeah, Allie's co-worker Darren has had fertility issues, offers to buy their kids, which they missed out on a great offer. $800,000? Each. Not bad. BJ and I are not advocating the sale of children. <laughs> it's only entertaining and as a television plot point. That's where that stops. The buck stops right on there. But Darren helps us see the stark difference between someone without kids really wanting them and then... 
Paul and Allie now having kids and struggling. And we see how that affects their whole family life because you have, I think, Allie who has adapted a bit better to this is how things are. And Paul is still struggling to make his kids the priority in his life. And he has this rage issue that he's learned about that came out when his kids were born where he can't stop screaming profanities at or near them. Yes, they make him very frustrated. And even when he tells himself, I need to be calm and cool, as soon as he sees them, it just comes out of him. Rage and all the things you shouldn't be saying around a child. And I don't have kids. I have kids in my life that I've watched before. And I too have been a child. (laughs) I know it may surprise you, Beach, but I wasn't always this fully realized woman I am now. Wow. And it does surprise me that they're almost enabling their child's issues by staying up all night with him. In my mind, I would think that they would get the kid help. He definitely has some anxiety and he's stressing out over things that he doesn't fully understand or grasp the magnitude or weight of. And it might be something beyond what the parents can help him cope with. But at least for this first night, they got to deal with it. Their oldest son listened to a lecture from a fire inspector and then became scared of fire, then home intruders. Drowning. And it just spiraled from there. One of the things that I saw with the children where I realized how much control they had was when the daughter Ava was reading Hungry Caterpillar and the mom Allie was like over on the other side of the room in bed with her eyes closed, but had memorized this storybook. So she could go page by page. And Ava was like, don't stop. I don't care if you're not actually reading the book. We're going to go through this whole story together tonight. Yes. So what are your thoughts on how all of this stress is affecting Paul and Allie's marriage? I think we have a hint at that toward the end where something huge happens and Allie basically believes that Paul hurt or kidnapped or killed their kids and believes it to the point where she calls the police on him. Of course, that wasn't the case. But the fact that she believed it means some serious damage has happened in that relationship. A simple apology is not going to be enough. That's going to take some time to move past together and I'm sure Paul will never forget all oh, that time you called the police and accused me of murdering our children. I would never forget that and I might never forgive it. But I get where she's coming from too because the things that she saw when she came home, I get why she panicked. There were a lot of clues and signs that led her to that conclusion, but she also didn't trust in her husband. All right, Beach. on that positive note, what would you rate FX's breeders? So this is difficult to rate. I think this is a well done show, but I also think that it appeals to parents. So I would say you should watch this seriously if you have children or if you're like a caretaker at a daycare or maybe a nanny, if you spend a lot of time with kids. If not, this show will just make you not want kids and might annoy you. (laughs) (laughs) It did make me question the merit of having children. But I would say that for my fellow folks who like comedies, this show was funny. Unintentionally, I watched the show, I think how I intend to watch it moving forward, which is the next time I have a recipe or an inkling to bake, which is what I did today. I will probably put this show on or a similar comedy because it is funny. It's starring Martin Freeman, who's very funny. He co-created the show. I liked it. Cool. Speaking of complicated family dynamics, let's take things over to the first planned neighborhood in America, Shaker Heights, for Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu. 
Based on the book by Celeste Ng, this adaptation from Weiss Witherspoon's production company opens with Reese as Elena welcoming artist Mia, played by Carrie Washington, and her daughter Pearl, played by Lexi Underwood, into her rental property. We also meet the rest of Elena's family, rounded out by her husband Bill, played by Joshua Jackson, and her kids, Lexi, the oldest daughter, slash straight A student, slash popular girl, played by Jade Pettyjohn, Trip, the oldest son, who's also the popular Jock, played by Jordan Elsass, Moody, who's the youngest son and isn't popular, much to Elena's chagrin, played by Gavin Lewis, and Izzy, the youngest daughter, who is also the black sheep of the family, played by Megan Stott. So with this show, we obviously have our two matriarchs, Mia and Elena. And I think one of the cool ways they introduce us into who these characters are and what motivates them is through some flashbacks from Mia. Do you think that that is an intriguing hint at Mia's past? Because we don't know much about why Mia and Pearl have moved to Shaker Heights. The explanation in the show from Pearl is that her mom is an artist and she gathers inspiration from each place that they live. And then once she has soaked up all of that inspiration and made her piece that she will sell, they leave and go to another town. Obviously, we learned that there is more to that. And with that, there's already this introduction of mystery. Why is this family set up this way? And the book is similar in that there is this constant simmering just underneath the surface. I think the flashbacks are the show's attempt at that, of that feeling that you get when you're reading the book, thinking you're building towards something. Because in the dream sequences, we see that there are some complicated things happening in her past. I'm not sure how I feel about them. I just think that was the show's best attempt at the intrigue that is built in the book. I really like the use of them because what we see in this first episode is that Mia seems very protective and somewhat harsh towards Pearl and Pearl's freedom in this new town. And I think these hints at some darker past help explain why Mia behaves the way she does. And so I think that makes her more, not necessarily likable, but you're not instantly against Mia because you realize there's some trauma that's causing her to behave the way she does. How do you feel about this dynamic between the Warren family and the Richardsons? I read the book. You hadn't read it. So you're coming into this story fresh. How do you feel about those two units? They're very different, but they're both complicated. Different sides of the track, as they say, different socioeconomic backgrounds, the single mother household versus the perfect upper middle class nuclear family setup. I liked the dichotomy, and I think there's some really interesting scenes and an entertainment perspective where you see Pearl spending more time with the Richardsons and then they not so subtly bring up the comparison between Elena and Mia of who's mothering their child better or who has the best interests of their children in mind. And I like the idea of exploring different parenting styles. Mia, the free roaming artistic mother, who's also very protective. Elena, who knows what success should look like and wants that for all of her children so they can follow the mold. And then even Bill, who's a more laid back dad, but will rely on Elena to raise his children. He gets to be laid back because he knows that his wife is doing what they both should be doing. Mm -hmm. He annoyed me in both the show and in the book. <laughs> I'm glad that you got that vibe. I was concerned with the show's portrayal of Elena that it was more black and white, where we sympathize with Mia and we're against Elena. And in the book, there's such a gray area with both of them where 
Elena doesn't do great things, but she's well-intentioned in all of the different busybody ways in which she tries to get involved in other people's lives. And Mia is raising her daughter in such a state of instability, but the relationship and love that she has with her daughter, the open conversations that they have that would never happen in the Richardson household are also so beautiful. So you see that bond with her daughter, despite the other instabilities surrounding them, their relationship is rock solid. So I'm glad that you get that impression from the show as well. They present that really well. I think that's a parenting aspect I've seen in many storylines outside of this show where there's a trade off between the resources you can provide your children with money and then the actual time and relationship building you spend with your children. And it seems especially in television, but also in real life, you all always get one or the other and not that perfect balance of both. We would all be more stable if we all found that perfect balance. You see that a lot with Izzy where she is that character that you encounter in a lot of movies and shows that is acting out in order to get attention, I think, from her family and instead is just met with more standoffishness. And instead of having the conversation with her parents about how she's feeling and why she feels different, Elena namely is just trying to fit her square body into the round peg, if that makes sense, so that she assimilates in with the society of Shaker Heights. You can't force someone to appreciate what they have, and you just need to have a conversation. So I think second to our matriarchs, Elena and Mia, we have Pearl, the new girl in town, and is the same age as Moody, so they start hanging out. What do you think of Pearl getting brought into the Richardson home, and we see hints of Moody maybe having a crush on Pearl, and Pearl maybe having a crush on his older brother, Tripp? I just want to snatch Pearl up and protect her from that family. (laughs) It stresses me out the different ways that I see coming that that family will take advantage of her. And her mom sees it too. So toward the beginning of the show, Elena offers Mia a position as a housekeeper for her family. And Mia rejects it, but then sees that Pearl is interested in interacting more with the family. And she takes the position in order to keep an eye on her daughter and keep an eye on that family and how they're treating her daughter. And I feel very similarly, I just want to snatch Pearl up and protect her. But they're so nice to Pearl. They offer her dinner, bikes, rides. They watch the real world together. You can totally see why Pearl was enthralled with that family because the book is set in 1997. I believe the show is set around the same time, late 90s. And right now we have more fluid understandings of family and what family structures look like. But in the 90s, I bet Pearl was jealous of seeing a nuclear family all hanging out, having snacks, watching TV in this big old house and having the stability of having grown up there versus how she and Mia have been more transient. So I can see how she got sucked in. Whether or not the Richardson is a good or healthy household, it's something that Pearl has never had, and she sees it as something desirable. Exactly. So I think that wraps up everything we can talk about without getting too much into spoilers. So how about we discuss our review of Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu? All right, BJ, what's your rating? I would rate this Would Watch Again seriously. Ooh, okay. I like the dynamic between Elena and Mia, so I want to see where that's going to go, especially with Mia potentially coming in as the house manager person. And at the very top of the show, we see that the Richardson home is burned down while Elena is in there and Izzy is missing. So I need to see how we get to that whole situation. 
For listeners who have read the book, which I would very strongly recommend, I would say watch this first episode. And I would say what I'll do is watch the first couple episodes to see if there is something else that they add to the story Mm. that makes it worth it to watch it in addition to already knowing basically how everything will turn out. Is it different enough or is this a lackluster retelling or just a straight retelling? You need to gauge that. And right now it feels like a more direct retelling. So I want to see a couple more episodes because I love that Reese Witherspoon has adapted this book. I love that Celeste Ng is actually an executive producer on the show. So I hope after a couple episodes, we'll see some different value add that brings a fresh angle to the story because there are things that you can do using visual media that you can't always convey with a book. That's true. I mean, the Harry Potter movies are fun. Mm, The last three are. I liked... Don't say Prisoner of Azkaban. And I was going to say Goblet of Fire. I stopped watching the movies when I was a child because of Prisoner of Azkaban. I've heard that from a lot of fans. Why did you say fans like that? <laughs> like what? You were a fan. Hmm. How would you describe yourself? All right, BJ, where can people find more episodes <laughs> of The Pilot Podcast? I don't like this little tone. They can head to our website at thepilotpodcast.com and they can subscribe to us on all their favorite podcast platforms. And there's also another way you can get even more Pilot Podcast content by going to join.thepilotpodcast.com to subscribe to the Pilot Podcast Deep Dive. You want to give a brief breakdown of what that's about? Listeners, you recommend so many wonderful shows to us and we're able to cover a lot of them in our regular episodes, but we save some for our deep dive because we can't get to them all. And in our deep dive episodes, we take deep dives into single pilot episodes of shows that y'all recommend. So We've done Apple TV's C, Hulu's High Fidelity, even Disney's DuckTales, and most recently, NBC's Awake. So there's lots of fun content happening over there, and please check it out at join.thepilotpodcast.com. You won't regret it. And where can they find us online? You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at The Pilot Pod. You can send thoughts, feelings, show suggestions, feedback, your weird dreams, whether they serve as flashbacks or future predictions for your life to askthepilotpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.